stay for the DG2C. Yeah. I have actually switched from coffee and caffeine drinks. Uh, no, no, Earl Grey, a little bit of lemon and some honey. Have you tried it with the, uh, the steamed milk? Uh, no, I don't. I, I can't do cream, and I don't like cream and tea anyway. Uh, to say, not a not a cream fan. I think in almost anything, uh, aside from like cooking and baking. So, um, we'll. Uh, I'd recommend this one. Well, I'm glad you'd recommend it. Uh, today, uh, we are going to be continuing. Uh, I'll just kick off. Thank all of you for joining us today at the Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We're going to be continuing 3.10. This is the bottom of 2.45 in the edition I use. Uh, the paragraph that begins the answer, as we have seen, uh, which is preceded by a series of questions. Uh, before we get diving in, did anyone want to uh, drop any more comments? Any thoughts on everything we've been reading or doing over the last, I don't know, how long? Uh, last week, specifically, I guess, I should uh, let us uh, dive a little bit further back in and see what we, uh, if anyone wants to continue that combo, or we can just dive straight in. Open up. Yeah, I actually have one. I was thinking about um, the three socii more, and I thought it was kind of interesting because if you think about the socii just at the level of codification and, and um, in the sense, semiotics. It's kind of interesting because the primitive starts out with arguably signifiers, right? Physical markings. So at that point, it sounded, it kind of sounds like the cons theory of the unconscious. Um, but the, the despotic will move into um, signifieds, right? The more mental aspect of the sign. Um, so it starts to sound a little bit more like they saw Sira. And then I thought it was interesting that they move into Kafka with Yelmel to look at an imminent theory of language. So it was kind of interesting. Yelm. Yelm Slev. Yelm Slev with an imminent theory of um, of flows uh, and semiotics here in Capital. So it was kind of interesting as I was thinking about that. That um, those three socii still seem to correspond to three major modes of thought, um, two of which are semiotic or at least linguistic in nature, the pan kind of being the one that tries to fuse psychoanalysis and uh, linguistics. But it was interesting um, to bring it to a conclusion that in capital with decoded flows, we would finally arrive at uh, where an imminent theory of language like Esmel's uh, would actually be appropriate. At some point, I am going to just have you sit down and we will just have you repeat his name a thousand times so we can start getting it right. Um, but no, um, I think I think you know if you want to simplify things with regards to the linguistic references they're making, I think the challenge is a lot. I mean, you could see this as at least the way I see it is to like all of Deleuze's philosophy it can be placed as problematic, which is actually what he says all philosophy books are. And uh, so for structure, the real question is. If we have something like a long or an imminent structure that is the that is that's expressed in phonetic speech and is by by means of expression is also the conditions of phonetic speech, 
How is it that this long is generated? What's the genetic account of it? How is it that we come to have one? And that's really what they're using Hemschlup for. That's, that's a great way to put it, actually. Thank you for that. Uh, any it's last important to remember that, that the expressed is also the condition, conditioning factor for Deleuze. So that's where the big challenge of how do we incorporate these two things together comes in. Well, and we're going to be speaking through that, I think, here actually pretty quickly. Um, I saw, uh, Jack, you had another thought real quick before I dive into the reading. Yeah, right to your point, um, for sure there. But the interesting thing is, right, if, if, as, if Yismel is going to correspond to like the decoded flows and that, those are basically on the margins for um, the first two soci, right? So codification would, in a sense, kind of, almost preclude the Yasmelvian um, take that they're adapting for capital. So that's kind of the interesting thing is um, if you want to place it in terms of the problematic, the problematic of decoded or non-coded flows in a Yasmelvian framework would basically not be, in a sense it wouldn't be possible in the first two soci because they're trying like hell to, uh, to basically marginalize or repress that, right? So something's changed in the problem altogether that's made decoded flows now actually the um, MDYD of X, right? That, that, that's now transformed to allow for that. Yeah, and I mean, these are the kind of genetic transformations we're talking about, right? I mean, this, you know, this is, in a way, we're asking how do things change by answering these questions. All right. Well, with that, I think I'll go ahead and uh, dive into uh, our continued reading. Uh, I'll move back slightly just to continue. Uh, why does it make the schizophrenic into a sick person, not only nominally, but in reality? Why does it confine its madmen and mad women instead of seeing in them its own heroes and heroines, its own fulfillment? Um, just to go back slightly, because it's important, because we're continuing from the answer. Uh, the question they're asking is, ultimately, uh, because there is some level of the way that the schizo's mind behaves, the sickness as is defined by capital. Why is it that capital doesn't reify these people, care for these people? Why is, why is it that they're trodden on? Why are they thrown into jails or kept under surveillance? Uh, why, does it inform, why does it form in turn a gigantic machine for social repression and psychic repression aimed at what nevertheless constitutes its own reality, the decoded flows? To continue. The answer, as we have seen, is that capitalism is indeed the limit of all societies, insofar as it brings about the decoding of the flows that the other social formations coded and overcoded. But it is the relative limit of every society. It affects relative breaks because it substitutes for the codes an extremely rigorous axiomatic that maintains the energy of the flows in a bound state on the body of capital as a socius that is deterritorialized, but also a socius that is even more pitiless than any other. Schizophrenia, on the contrary, is indeed the absolute limit that causes the flows to travel in a free state on a desocialized body without organs. Hence, one can say that schizophrenia is the exterior limit of capitalism itself, or the conclusion of its deepest tendency but that capitalism only functions on condition that it, inhib it, in it, it inhibit 
this tendency. But, uh, sorry, uh, on condition that it inhibit this tendency or that it push back or displace this limit by substituting for it its own imminent relative limits, which it continually reproduces on a widened scale. It axiomatizes with one hand what it decodes with the other. Such is the way one must reinterpret the Marxist law of the counteracting tendency. With the result that schizophrenia pervades the entire capitalist field from one end to the other. But for capitalism, uh, we'll stop there, actually. I'm going to break this paragraph up because this is another three-page paragraph. There's a lot of these. We'll stop there, and let's discuss what has been said so far. Um, um, please, if anyone wants <laughs> yeah, to I go mean, for it. Um, I think we can spend some time speaking about the limit, specifically what they mean by that. Because it's an int the interior-exterior distinction is another... Another interesting distinction that you know it's a big part of Deleuze's thought if you read his book on Foucault there is a distinction between exteriority and interiority and the folds that they constitute so if you want to think of what they mean by a relative limit I think the simplest way to sort of conceptualize this is take a piece of paper and then if you fold the piece of paper in half you basically get a wall and that'll basically be your interior slash relative limit an exterior limit is something that would exist outside the piece of paper. So it's on the edges of the piece of paper, which would be the exterior limit. But the interior one is constituted by a folding that takes place. It's actually a very crisp way of talking about it. It's the idea that one exists within the system of itself, the other, the absolute limit. Nothing can be beyond the full schizophrenization because it's essentially full freedom to connect how you want, flows operating as they do. Anything short of that is relative limits, and this is a relative limit of society that capitalism is able to play with. It's within that uh, setup. Yeah, I mean, it's like you're producing a wall on a flat surface by creasing that surface. That's kind of the idea that Deleuze wants to get at with the idea of the interior. Yeah, capitalism will continually be pushing at some point. We'll, we'll have an idea for a product that we feel is, uh, you know, uh, social media is actually, I think, a very good example of the way it works within capital. Uh, the idea of a totally decentralized, democratized communication platform felt at the time like almost emancipatory and that it would break capital, but it was a relative break and a relative limit that it found and it pushed beyond because ultimately it was able to be recaptured. Uh, schizophrenia is always beyond that. It, it cannot be captured in the same way. It can't be held within the walls. It is the absolute limit as they say, that causes the flows to travel in a free state on a desocialized body without organs. That desocialized body in that free state is kind of the uh, conditions required for such a thing. Uh, Rimka asks, is it also a fold of the clinical entity of schizophrenia, that which must be treated, or just the process? There's a lot. That's a, that's a lot asked in a very short few number of words. Um, they're referring to yeah, both, maybe. I think. Varun? I mean, the clinical entity it's, um, of, schizo of schizophrenia is basically like, um, that's kind of what they mean when, you know, you, you reach the breakdown state. Rather than getting to the breakthrough, you reach the breakdown and you get to like, actually the word they use in French is autistic, like the autistic body, that's what they use. Um, 
which may be a better way of describing it. The fully broken but, down one, it's just real quick because it's actually an important distinction. The fully broken down body that doesn't respond to touch. If, um, I, if you've ever worked with um, uh, people in these situations, um, uh, children, for example, who are, who are significantly on the spectrum, not some level of Asperger's, but you know, full shutdown. That's the, the point they're talking about, this full shutdown. There's nothing connecting, nothing happening, no connections being made. Uh, Guattari spends a great deal of time talking about that. Um, I know, Varun, you're more well-read than I am, but it's a big push for him. Or am I wrong? <laughs> no, I mean, I, that's what makes this book so difficult is some of the translation things are not that clear, in my opinion. But, I mean, that's one of the harder parts about this book, whether, you know, whether when they talk about this, uh, the autistic body, are they really talking about this uh, medical conceptualization of people who really suffer from these issues, or are they talking about something else with regards to um, the organization of their bodies? Mm. I get a bit lost in that sometimes. Yeah, my interpretation has always been that they're talking about less a diagnosis or a thing and more a process. And so schizophrenia as a process, and that's a thing that at this time and in the way that it was talked about, it isn't the same thing as we refer to schizophrenia now. There's a lot more things that are broken down. We, have, we even don't even have autism. We have, a, we have a huge swath of conditions that are sort of within the spectrum of autism. So when you go back and you reread these, it's difficult because their clinical naming for things are, uh, we'll say, old and also inexact. But again, I think they're talking a lot more about the process of such a thing, the process of schizophrenia, the process of capitalism. None of these are things. These are machines. Uh, schizophrenia is the process, is the absolute limit that causes flows to travel in a free state on a desocialized body without organs. That it, the process of schizophrenia is the exterior limit of capitalism itself. There isn't like a schizophrenia thing that is the wall. It's the process and the edge of it is how I've read it. Did you have thoughts? Triad, welcome, by the way. Yeah, hello. No, I, I agree, uh, at least that uh, it is this processual manner. And for me, all the time uh, I read stuff from this book, it reads very materialistic in the sense uh, that uh, they try to describe this, this new form of a processual ontology that they just use this psychoanalytical vocabulary and jargon because it is the thing uh, except from marxism as well and structuralism that moves the intellectual movements of their time but they totally use it in a different way uh, away from this uh, symbolic and and semiological tendencies and and totally materialize it and and desubjectivize it in, uh, these in a sense so uh, to me it it has nothing to do with a real uh, schizophrenic for example or with uh, clinical connotations this is just used here as uh something maybe a Deleuze would later call uh, uh a figure uh in in relation to to effects that are created by uh a romancier or uh, an artist to to convey this notion or, or to give a vague conceptualization for this that opens up our thinking on this yeah that it i i love that and it's when we talk about, even though 
even if we talk about, because we're talking about at this point, this discussion is the the capitalism and schizophrenia, capitalism as the molar, uh, the molecular of the schizo, they're actually fairly able to be allegorical or 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 there's an there's an equality we can talk about between them. On the one hand, the limit of the socius, uh, the absolute limit is the schizo, is absolutely anything connecting with anything. Capital can't have fully unbridled anything connecting with anything. But I would say that the same is very true of, say, the psyche or the way that the machinic unconscious works, the limit being anything connecting with anything, because there is basically anything that becomes anything connecting with anything. And everything else that is a determinate or this or that connecting within that is necessarily a limit short of that sort of setup. And as such, capital becomes that same setup where it is the interior limit, uh, the relative interior limit uh, versus the absolute limit, which is the schizo, the exterior outside everything. Uh, again, I think that like you're saying, they're using it as uh, almost poetic terminology to try to get across this this point of the way that these these things work. Any any other comments before I move on to the next little part? Um, we're about to get into uh, more about Marxism. So it's not supposed to indicate any sort of pathology uh, when it says, or it is it is indicating pathology, and that's why it is a limit. I'm sorry. That's somewhat. That still it remains confusing to me. It's implying the 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 total limit or destruction at at a specific threshold of every form of uh, um, identity that a system has, because every system is defined by um, inner references uh, or inner representations that convey its uh, identity and reproduce it all the time and if you get to this threshold and 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 take a step further the the system totally breaks and devolves into uh, its its surroundings and there is then no more a surrounding or a, a system an inside or an outside because everything just devolves and is just a blob so to speak uh okay no, I think I get it. That's uh, so. It's, it is not indicating just a psychological thing of schizophrenia. It's I mean, kind of indicating it. I think the thing is that Deleuze and Guattari's understanding of pathology itself is different, and that's where the challenge and controversies start from. You know, um, when it speaks, when they speak about illness, like Brooke said, illness is not a is is, is a process rather than. Um, an event, in it, maybe an event too, but it's a process rather than, a, you know, a fixed thing. And that's where, like, these big differences in um, psychiatric philosophies would... Yeah, I, doesn't, like, there, no one is... The way we use it today. No one is schizophrenic. No one is a schizo. No one is autistic. No one is these things. Those are determinant categories that we place people in. Instead, they have... Uh, their desiring machines fire and connect in certain ways and connect in specific ways that produce these forms. Like again, life is about sort of this ongoing production of becoming and we utilize representation in a very difficult way that sort of creates that repression and defines things in very harsh ways. But the, the thing they're really trying to get at is getting us to rethink. It's not that their person's schizophrenic and therefore they are this category of thing. Uh, instead, it's 
people are becoming constantly. The process that they have is these things. And Guattari, for example, uh, in his treatments and how he talked about uh, uh, the, the autistic patients that were shut down, it's not so much that they are autistic, good luck, put them in a dark cage. It's they've shut down. Their desiring machines have, we need to restart them, almost jumpstart them by doing baths and hand-on touching and drying with your hands and these things that shift the process, that change the way that their bodies and their desiring machines connect. So what I'm gathering is kind of just that schizophrenia, the schizophrenia is kind of depicted as um, a putting the cart before the horse kind of thing and that there is a cart and that is like, uh, you know, there is a cart and there is a horse. Schizophrenia is kind of like um, breaking the ties or the breaking the context of a codified desire and making the desire the it sounds to me like it's making that the uh, purpose or the aim, which is which is pathological and thus the limit of what those codified things can do can accomplish. That's what I gather from it. So I, that's why that's why that's how I was that's how I kind of see it is that 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 it's like a limit in the sense that it is pathological because it's it is making the desire the uh, end means rather than the things that produce that desire or the codes that surround it. You know, the, the it's kind of like the making the fulcrum the lever, so to speak. Let's let's take a second and talk about artificial intelligence. Um, the way AI or machine learning works by nature is it can't do anything that hasn't been done before. Now it can combine things in unique ways, but it's got to be a way that's been done before. The limit necessarily within all machine learning is the limit of things that are. Now they may, you know, contingently throw some things together, but the creation of something truly new, novel, or original is at this point, as far as we understand AI, a total pipe dream. So if we think about the limits of any society, when things become decoded, recoded, reset up and put together, there is a limit to the connections that are allowed to happen within any given contingent set of circumstances in the same way AI has that set up. Those limits that capitalism is able to decode, recode and move forward, they're right at the edges. It's a relative limit that it's pushing back. It's relative breaks. It's not shattering the entire thing in the same way that like a truly like di mentally divergent connecting anything to anything with no goal, no understanding, no systemic level in place would have an absolute limit on the far exterior. This is how I understand sort of their setup. So when they talk about, for example, um, the, the capitalism only functions on condition that it inhibit this tendency or that it push back or displace this limit by substituting for its own relative imminent limits, which it continually reproduces on a widened scale. This is that setup. So when we talk about schizophrenia or we talk about any of these things that are determinate, they're determinate and built within the system as the system is setting up and they're sort of there. We are within at the smaller level where the molecular version of what's happening at a societal level is a good deal of what they're arguing here. So uh, just as I'm not going to be saying that we should all be schizos, we should all be schizophrenic, uh, a society fully decoded that's just at the full exterior is a whole different beast. But capitalism, because they've been talking about how it decodes and recodes, they're being very specific. This is not the absolute limit. 
this is this is its relative limit, relative breaks, always pushing at that next step, but never shattering the wall that's continually moving. But for capitalism, it is a question of binding the schizophrenic charges and energies into a world axiomatic that always opposes the revolutionary potential of decoded flows with new interior limits. And it is impossible in such a regime to distinguish, even in two phases, between decoding and the axiomatization that comes to replace the vanished codes. The flows are decoded and axiomatized by capitalism at the same time. Hence, schizophrenia is not the identity of capitalism, but on contrary, its difference, its divergence, and its death. Monetary flows are perfectly schizophrenic realities, but they exist and function only within the imminent axiomatic that exercises and repels this reality. The language of a banker, a general, an industrialist, a middle or high-level manager, or a government minister is a perfectly schizophrenic language, but that functions only statistically within the flattening axiomatic of connections that put it in the service of the capitalist order. At the highest level of linguistics as a science, Yelmslev is able to affect a vast decoding of language only by setting in motion from the start an axiomatic machine based on the supposed finite number of figures considered. Then what becomes of the truly schizophrenic language and the truly decoded and unbound flows that manage to break through the wall or absolute limit? The capitalist axiomatic is so rich that one more axiom is added for the books of a great writer whose lexical and stylistic characteristics can, only be, can always be computed by means of an electric machine, or for the discourse of madmen that can always be heard within the framework of a hospital, administrative, and psychiatric axiomatic. In brief, the notion of break flow has seemed to us to define both capitalism and schizophrenia, but not in the same way. They are not at all the same thing, depending on whether the decodings are caught up in an axiomatic or not, on whether one remains at the level of the large aggregates functioning statistically, or crosses the barrier that separates them from the unbound molecular positions, on whether the flows of desire reach this absolute limit or are content to displace a relative imminent limit that will reconstitute itself further along, on whether controlling re-territorializations are added to the process of deterritorialization, and on whether money burns or bursts into flames. Oh, I'm going to take a nap. So if I could kick that off on... Um... So Remke and I were talking about this. Um, so in a sense, what, what Brooks read us into this paragraph, right, that preceding um, transition is why does schizophrenia, um, particularly in a pathological state for people, have this kind of expression, right? Why is, um, why is it problematized? Not simply as pathology, but as um, a process, right? A non-anthropomorphic process. And I think this point about the limits is basically setting up um, a condition um, or a parameter, if you like, for the first synthesis, right? So the first synthesis obeys the law of um, connection, right? So it's break flow. So in the uh, breast and the mouth, right? The mouth, or excuse me, 
the breast emits a flow that the mouth breaks. Um, and you see this coming up again here, this problem of break flow basically being something shared by capitalism and uh, schizophrenia. But I think what's interesting is as they set up these limits, right, and to, to go back to that original question of expression, why is expression happening this way if it's not relying on codes, right? If it's decoding um, what we would expect from, say, a primitive or a, um, a despotic or alternatively Lacanian or Saucerian semiotics, why is this happening then? And I think that's because the parameters of the first synthesis, and you see them starting to move in the second synthesis, in the second half of this paragraph, are being constructed in such a way that schizophrenia as an external limit seems to still provide the impetuous for flows, right? But on the other hand, the way that the breaks are being constituted through the relative limit are causing breaks with those flows. So if we go back to the displacement of the limit, this seems to help answer that question because every time the limit is displaced, there's this break with a break, right? And the reconstitution of the limit provides that. And that seems to be capitalism, but the absolute limit of schizophrenia seems to still be the impetuous for those flows to now keep moving, right? Or to remove, if you like, uh, and to therefore run up against continued breakings that keep perpetuating the cycle. Uh, well, if it is a cycle, they keep these processes restarting, I think would be the better way to say it. So I, I think that's what they're moving into here then, is if that's the condition for the first synthesis, if those are the parameters, then that's going to lead into the way that expression will be constituted, especially since it's not referencing a code or an overcoding. Um, this imminent point about Yesmil, hopefully I said that correctly, uh, seems to provide us the point that with the axiomatic, uh, and they're moving into the institutions here, so like a typical Foucauldian analysis, there seems to be a point here about like that uh, Yesmilvian grid we talked about uh, last week, and the way that that's going to be constituted, in a sense, to basically work on how that, how those connections, those breaks and flows are going to be able to express themselves, particularly without relying on codification, but actually uh, the decodification of all that, right? And the expression thereby. I, uh, okay. I have a slightly different take. Uh, to me, this, this paragraph is starting to make the shift from where we previously understood various elements that were happening inside of this space. Um, let's say, um, the way that under Savage, uh, for example, um, uh, things would be coded and recoded and coded and decoded and coded and kind of that back and forth that happens. Uh, um, my daughter becomes, uh, basically a, uh, alliance maker. Uh, the things become hard coded very quickly etched into the body. These elements recorded for all of us. As I move into the next step. Uh, things become sort of coded as owned by uh, the despot. Uh, the despot owns everything, and there's kind of this overcoding he gets to do uh, that allows us allows him to sort of own everything, have that wonderful space where he's both the alliant and affiliative, and they can move that direction. 
the shift here they're talking about is that we're we're not talking about monetary flows being this thing that is decoding or recoding or is breaking this. Uh, they say very cleanly here, monetary flows are perfectly schizophrenic realities, but they exist and function only within the imminent axiomatic that exorcises and repels this reality, that we're moving from a place of code and coding and decoding and recoding to a place of basically decoding that's happening all the fucking time, thanks to monetary flows, as we talked about in the previous chapter, it's this exceptionally abstractifying process that's decoding everything. But it's not that it's recoding all of it as money. It's not really, there's too much. Like capital doesn't really work like that. Instead, maybe uh, it's this other thing, this, this axiomatic that now sort of plays, this symbolic coding that changes things uh, and, and becomes the representation we have to deal with and, and that causes this repression, that causes our behavior, that's no longer this quantitative, but instead qualitative way of looking at the coding and the elements and the things that are being created and done. And so this, this push and this shift, they're saying this is where this is happening. It's, it's not so much that we say that these things are identical. It's not that, uh, you know, we have, Capitalism, schizophrenia, we talk about that, that's great, but they don't actually work in the same way. Like, they're not at all the same thing, depending on whether the decodings are caught up in an axiomatic or not, on whether one remains at the level of large aggregates functioning statistically. Uh, these, these levels, this is where they start separating out uh, the difference between the capitalism and schizophrenia, where the challenge is schizophrenia doesn't axiomatize, capitalism does. and axiomatizations are so deeply socially connected. They're not just culturally how I understand things. They're not just uh, the, the traditions of my family, but it actively goes and destroys them, subverts them. Uh, and this, this shift to axiomatization um, is a change from just saying code changing forms and being recoded. Like it's a big shift. And that's what I think this paragraph is about to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm processing what you're saying. I guess I would push it further toward the question of the axiom then, in turn, because we spent a lot of time a year ago on what is an axiom. And um, as I've thought about it more for this session, uh, it's, so I reposted that, uh, that diagram that uh, our buddy Dr. Tim gave us for the rock, paper, scissors, Yesmo um, example. And um, Oh, that's very pretty. Thank you for that. Um, anyways, I th I think this might help us understand the axiom then, because if it is a question of expression of decoded flows, and especially if they're going to start constituting them or start implicating the institution in relation to these two syntheses, I think the axiom is basically going to be kind of like rock, paper, scissors, that which provides um, more or less a condition as opposed to the code, which would provide a kind of meaning. Um, well, uh, one more step. Like. It's just real quick to step in there. It's if something is coded and recoded, it's a one-to-one -one transition. If something is decoded and axiomatized, it can have surplus value. Well, there's surplus value in either place. It's just a different. No, 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 no. Yeah. 
Not necessarily, no. Yeah, it's, it's a difference of surplus value of code versus surplus value of blocks. Because the axiomatic is going, if I understand this correctly, the axiomatic is going to give you the flux that basically provides the expression and content in this diagram. But the axiomatic to provide that flux has to provide, if I understand this correctly, something in terms of parameters or rules or something of that nature. Um, and maybe that's in the break in the flow for the first synthesis that is going to help expression and content actually take place. Um, that's the best I can make out of this now. So axiomatization lands right where we have the flows that are being deterritorialized, connecting to the uh, uh, other deterritorialized uh, resources and elements and desire flows. And at that point, the re-territorialization of that sort of conjunction can be repurposed via axiomatization. Could you repeat that? Uh, I'm just going to read from Holland. Uh, axiomatization, the fundamental process of deterritorialization, deterritorialization, re-territorialization that accompanies this natural mechanism of capital. This operates by conjoining deterritorialized resources and appropriating the surplus arising from their re-territorializing conjunction. The original capitalist axiom, for example, conjoined deterritorialized wealth, monetary wealth no longer embodied in landed property, with deterritorialized labor power bereft of any means of subsistence. The axiomatization of these deterritorialized flows linked liquid wealth invested in means of production with free workers with nothing to sell but their labor power. Subsequently, the continuing development of capitalism has axiomatized many other resource flows, including knowledge, skills, taste, and integrated them into the production process. Yeah, for the surplus value of flux, right? It's the, it's Correct. The axiomatic provides the decoding and deterritorialization if you're saying that's going to as I'm reading it, it's going to transfer into this question of expression and content, right? Mm. Because that seems to be what what it's doing. So like if we take it in decoding, right? So there's a codified flow. And the axiomatic, one of the things it's doing, um, whether it's a schizophrenic or capitalist flow, but particularly when there's an axiomatic, it's going to basically, um, I mean, like they said, right? It's going to, on one hand, kind of, dissolve the, uh, the information there, but it's also kind of going to destroy it, right? Which is what I think they said last week. Um, and in doing so, there's still this question, I think, of expression and content that they're pushing here through Yasmo, right? Because that flow is still going to do things. It's still going to have an expression and content. And that seems to be where the axiomatic is the critical thing. Um, we kind of Weberized it last year in terms of like, Oh, right, like it was a penny saved or penny earned. And um, that was kind of helpful. But it's, it's sort of the question of what's going to make that kind of saying possible almost, if, if I understand this correctly. It's sort of tricky to piece together. Um, but yeah, I do agree with you. It is a question of how those flows are basically not only destroying codes, if you like, but still constituting... Um, expressions of flux, right, to get that surplus. Well, and it's, it's specifically what I'm talking about is where the axiomatic shows up, is it only shows up upon the decoding, upon the deterritorialization. 
doesn't it doesn't sit on codes and do shit with codes. It waits for those decoded flows. It see it seizes them, and that axiomatization spawns reterritorialization, spawns recodifying, and through that has the excess the 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 secondary surplus value that is then reappropriated, and that's what they're talking about sort of through this that this push is this is very different than inside of uh specifically inside of i think as they're talking about it the schizophrenic um the capitalist axiomatic itself sort of is set up in that direction um to quote uh, uh whether the flows of desire reach this absolute limit or are content to displace a relative imminent limit that will reconstitute itself further along on whether controlling reterritorializations are added to the process of deterritorialization and on whether money burns or bursts into flames There's the, the last being a reference to the idea that um, desire unbridled would cause it to burst into flames, flows unbridled. But money burning, there's, we can justify such a thing. Through an axiom. Is, is. <laughs> that made me laugh. We, we can, can justify, justify burning money. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, there's, there's uh, literally, I think, 42 places around the United States where they literally just burn used money. Well, I'm, I'm even thinking of like post World War One Germany, right, where burning cash was actually a, a better economic decision than buying coal. So, yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. You you can't burn, um, but it's it's kind of funny to think about. Um, but yeah, I like that you're pushing to that last sentence because that's kind of the the rub of everything, right? Is there is still this lingering question of how do we understand the difference of the capitalist, um, the cap capitalism as internal limit and schizophrenia as external limit, right? And I do think you're right. The axiomatic is a big part of that difference. And just to read another bit from uh, Holland's uh, Introduction to Schizoanalysis, highly recommended. You'll, there's a million P links to this PDF somewhere on this server. Um, Thus, although capitalist axiomatization insistently re-territorializes and recodes in the service of power and the past, it also continually deterritorializes and decodes, providing opportunities for the free form of semiosis to lose in Guattari champion in the name of schizophrenia. So it is that schizophrenia on the body without organs emerges at as the end of universal history as the principle of freedom in permanent revolution. This, this place that Capitalist axiomatization sits between the two, uh, uh, taking off the slice as it re-territorializes and taking sort of its pound of flesh is how I envision it. And I like, I, I think that works. Well, actually, if I, if I could ask you a question, because um, you, you're a bit more familiar not only in pronunciation, but with the work of Yesmo than I am. Yelm, Yelm, um, Yelm Sliv. You notice it gets different every time, though. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. It's really just the same thing every time. Um, anyways, um, the question I'd like to pose to you is, could you speak a little bit on purport? And the reason I'm asking you to do that... Oh, Jesus Christ, really? I know the hardest concept in linguistics, but the reason I'm asking about it um, is because I'm wondering if there's not a connection between purport and axiomatic here. There's not. Is that, well, okay. Uh, pur purport is is i mean jesus christ 
like, okay, so the, the concept around purport, I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to fully get into it. Um, language sort of has to have a purport. Um, to quote him, uh, it is the unformed, not in itself subjected to formation, but susceptible to formation. If, um, if I were to say the flows of meaning within language or sense, perhaps, I think um, probably is in line with that, Deleuze's concept of logic of sense. Um, but the, the substance, the thing behind language that is, is purport. So it, it doesn't really relate totally to what we're talking about here, I don't think, at least in terms of axiomatic. It's much more in line with Deleuze's sort of theory of uh, language coming all at once or how sense is generated through these things. There is something to language that separates language out. I think it's a Saussure. Um, uh, also had a substance behind language. Oh, God, it's been too long. Uh, but purport sucks, man. Purport's a really like weird, difficult thing, and I've read multiple conflicting papers on it, so I can't really give much of a read on it. I've heard someone compare it to Lacan's real. I've heard other like it's just it's it's not an easy one. But I will say, I don't think it's the same as axiomatization. What happens is things get decoded, we decide here is how things are, and the axiomatization is created that re-territorializes re or recodes the fluxes, and in that moment we have surplus value being generated because that's the only thing that the axiomatization wants or gives a shit about is this extra little bit of, hey, cool, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, as it goes, as these things are sort of rebuilt around it, as it tears apart codes and then rebuilds them, mine, 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 as it goes, this surplus that somehow is constantly being taken out of the system and utilized. Um, it's a horrifying thing. But it is a it is a bit ghoulish. There's a Lovecraftian vibe to it when you really think about it. Yeah, I know. I, 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 he who shall not be named, Jack. Um, right, Voldemort of uh, the Lovecraftian world. Yeah, <laughs> which is quite um, the statement when you think about it. Yeah, it's mostly because it derails every conversation. It's like, it's like bringing up cryptocurrency. So guess that's it. That's the end of the conversation. You're now talking about cryptocurrency. We're not doing that. Um, uh, any questions, comments on what we've said so far? We've said a lot. Please. Uh, it's fully open here. If anyone has anything, please. Um, this is a big Jesus Christ. Because we're about to talk even deeper into uh, how decoding and recoding works and why axiomatization takes place. So... I may say, wait for the next paragraph, but now would be the time. Please, questions, comments, anything. Will I drink my tea? It is, it is, tea is one of those things that's worth spending a couple extra bucks to get the good bergamot. You need it. Earl Grey has to have it good. Um, all right, I will continue. And we'll move into the next uh, smaller paragraph, but somehow it's going to be, I think, a longer discussion. Why not merely say that capitalism replaces one code with another? Hmm? That it carries into effect a new type of coding? For two reasons, one of which represents a kind of moral impossibility, the other a logical impossibility. All the cruelties and terrors meet in the pre-capitalist formations. 
Some fragments of the signifying chain are struck by secrecy, secret societies, or initiation groups. But there is never anything in these societies that is, strictly speaking, unavowable. It is with the thing, capitalism, that the unavowable begins. There is not a single economic or financial operation that, assuming it is translated in terms of a code, would not lay bare its own unavowable nature. That is, its intrinsic perversion or essential cynicism. The age of bad conscience is also the age, age of pure cynicism. But in point of fact, it is impossible to code such operations. In the first place, a code determines the respective qualities of the flows passing through the socius. For example, the three circuits of consumer goods, prestige goods, and women and children. The characteristic object of codes is therefore to establish necessarily indirect relations among these qualified and therefore incommensurable codes. Such relations indeed imply a quantitative siphoning off of portions of the different sorts of flows. But these quantities do not enter into equivalences that would presuppose an unlimited something. They simply form composites that are themselves qualitative, essentially mobile and limited, where differences between the elements compensate the disequilibrium, whence the relationship of prestige and consumption and the block of finite debt. Whew. Um, this is a breakdown of the axiomatic and why. Um, who wants to start to kick this one off? I, mean, I actually like how you just put it. Why, why axiomatic, right? That, I mean, to your point, that's pretty much what they're, they're answering here. Why does capitalism need an axiomatic to decode as opposed to just doing more recoding? Um, I really like the line there in the middle. The code determines the respective qualities of the flows passing through the socius. The characteristic object of code is therefore to establish necess uh, necessarily indirect relations among these qualified and therefore incommensurable codes. Um, is by that meant something like um, McLuhan's notion of the medium is the message uh, in that sense that every aspect of formation within these uh, codes, so to speak, uh, structures its content as well. Which line? Sorry. Uh, a code determines the respective qualities of the flows passing through the socius. So by that... Uh, I read that it's not necessarily that they're pointing directly at McLuhan. I, um, the, the way a code works, as they're, like they're describing it at a very basic level, is that, and this is across societies, this is not in capital, a code determines the qualities of the flows passing through the socius. We have consumer goods, they're coded as such, that's how they move through the socius. Prestige goods, women, children, donkeys, livestock, eggs, whatever, it doesn't matter. These, these things move through the socius and they're coded as such. The characteristic object of codes, the, the goal, is to establish necessarily indirect relations among these qualified and therefore incommensurable codes. You can't swap women for donkeys. I mean, yes, welcome sexist joke, but that's like 
they, you can't really, they're not one-to-one, -one. They're, they're different flows. They need to be coded as such so that way we can have an understanding of how they move. And this is the discussion they had during the uh, primitive socius, that in the primitive socius, things are coded very harshly, like fucking crazy harsh. Um, but they have codes that say, this is worth X amount, this is worth this amount, without even having necessarily a monetary system as we sort of have it. The, as we move forward and we're here, we can't have, this is their argument here, is we can't have in capitalism just replace one code with another because if that was the case, all of the indirect relations amongst all of these incommensurable codes would be able to be comparable, but they wouldn't be able to be abstractified. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they wouldn't be able to be as qualitative mm -hmm. as they are in ours. Such relations as these codes indeed imply a quantitative siphoning off of portions of the different sorts of flows, but the quantities do not enter into equivalences that would presuppose an unlimited something. They simply form composites that are themselves qualitative, essentially mobile and limited, where differences between the elements compensate the disequilibrium. Um, the, oh, yeah, that donkey's old. I'm not going to give you three wives for it. I'm fucking terrible. I keep going back to donkeys and wives. Um, <laughs> but it, um, it, it, it's the qualitative element at the very end that maybe helps you know, with some level of disequilibrium. But generally speaking, we kind of know what books are worth. But that's not really true in capital. Things are hyper like switched up. Now with the axiomatic, things get deeply broken down. In that step between the decoding and the recoding, something gets siphoned off, that, that surplus value. And we can't just have it replace one code with another because if that was the case, we could not have all of the economic system they've talked to up until this point in about capital. Like it just would not work at this point is how I read that sort of second half of the paragraph. Yeah, this definitely helps. Thank you. Yeah, the, my, my favorite line is, the, the unavowable, and Zizek does, right, does a lot of talking about the things that are unavowable, the, the things you're not allowed to speak. Um, and there's some great jokes, dirty jokes mostly he has, but he's, he's given some significantly brilliant talks on that. And the things we can't say out loud, that is, 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 is unique uh, to where we're at uh, because we can't talk about it. And there's, things wholly stopping us because we have all of these weird abstractified axiomatics that are driving at us. And ultimately all of it is under this intrinsic perversion or essential cynicism, which is, uh, again, we live in the age of cynicism. I don't think anyone here, I hope no one here would have, I would have to disagree with, but I just love that phrasing of it and sort of the talking down of it because it's a, it's a really interesting way to talk through that, especially within capital. Bosker, that's a. <laughs> Bosker, uh, uh, just this age, cynical? <laughs> I doubt it. It's, it reminds me of the Homer line. Do I know what rhetorical means? Um, yeah. Uh, any questions, comments on this before I move on? Because I think they're about to continue the point. And they're about to get into Al Althusar, Balabar. And a handful of things to continue talking about the surplus value of code and how the axiomatic works within the flux. So um, please, at any point, uh, any questions, comments, 
because so far we're just saying here's why we can't uh, this paragraph. Here's why we can't just replace one code with another. Here's why decoding and recoding isn't just that simple. Can't work that way in capital because we have these weird qualitative secondary judgments about things that don't work within our socius. Uh, and that's uh, this next line. All of these code characteristics, the stuff I was just talking about, Trad, indirect, qualitative, and limited, are sufficient to show that a code is not and can never be economic. On the contrary, it expresses the apparent objective movement according to which the economic forces, or productive connections, are attributed to an extra economic instance as though they emanated from it, an instance that serves as a support and an agent of inscription. I just, I do want to pause there for a moment. Um, it is important to know they are not talking about exchangeism as being economic. An economic system, as they've defined it to this point, is not just that. They're talking about the economy of capital, the way investment capital works, the way industrial capital works, as they talked about in the previous section. So just to sort of dip that one in the bud. Um, that is what Althusar and Balabar show so well, how juridical and political relations as de are determined as dominant in the case of feudalism, for example, because surplus labor as a form of surplus value constitutes a flux that is qualitatively and temporally distinct from that of labor and consequently must enter into a composite that it is, is itself qualitative and implies non-economic factors. To read the bottom, this is Marx, Capital, Volume 3. Under such conditions, the surplus labor for the nominal owner of the land can only be extorted from them by other than economic pressure, whatever the form assumed may be. Or, the way the autochthonous relations of alliance and filiation are determined as dominant in the so-called primitive societies, where the economic forces and flows are inscribed on the full body of the earth and are attributed to it. In short, there is a code where a full body, as an instance of anti-production, falls back on the economy that it appropriates. That is why the sign of desire, as an economic sign, that consists in producing and breaking flows, is accompanied by a sign of necessarily extra economic power, although its causes and effects lie within the economy. For example, the sign of alliance in relation to the power of the creditor. Or what amounts to the same thing, surplus value here is determined as a surplus value of code. Hence, the code relation is not only indirect, qualitative, and limited. Because of these very characteristics, it is also extra economic, and by virtue of this fact, engineers the couplings between qualified flows. Consequently, it implies a system of collective appraisal and evaluation, and a set of organs of perception, or more precisely, of belief, as a condition of existence and survival of the society in question. Thus, the collective investment of organs that causes men to be directly coded and the appraising eye as we have analyzed in the primitive system. It should be noted that these general traits characterizing a code are rediscovered precisely in what today is called a genetic code, not because it depends on an effect of the signifier, but on the contrary, because the chain it constitutes is only signifying in a secondary way, 
insofar as it calls into play couplings between qualified flows, interactions that are exclusively indirect, qualitative composites that are essentially limited, and organs of perception and extra chemical factors that select and appropriate the cellular connections. Good, good God, there's a lot said there, isn't there? The secondary play he's talking about here is it's no longer that I'm converting you know, one flow into another, one decoding and recoding. I'm not selling 20 chickens for two oxen or a wife for a, a wealth of a, from another family or any of those things. That in between, there's the secondary economic effect, capital, and not money. Again, we're not talking about money. We're talking about capital. The movement of things as part of capital system is implied in every purchase, every interaction, everything you do. There is a capital component that is naturally created just in the interaction you're having and in the code relation that you're taking part in. And that varies greatly, varies greatly. But that specific thing didn't happen before. This extra economic set, this this something inside of capital that somehow is part of whatever, you know, conservatives may call the invisible hand of the market or any type thing, the, the way capitalism and the market play, everything implies that. And that wasn't the case. It just wasn't. It's not, not how people talked about it. It's not how it was done as he runs through here for the full body of the earth or even the despot. Now, everything has these other levels, but also is extra economic by virtue of the fact it engineers the couplings between qualified flows, which is fucking weird to think about because that extra economic thing engineers other extra economic things and places the sort of areas that they're safely able to move into. Um, it implies a system, I love this line, of collective appraisal and evaluation. It's an amazing uh, breakdown of the shift we've moved to with this large-scale axiomatic that's no longer just dealing with this one transaction, but instead this large-scale, how can I make money off of this capital in that case? How can I become richer? How can I play into investments rather than just, oh yeah, no, I need, I need tomatoes. Okay, cool, I've got this. Cool, thanks. Oh, yes, but if I can get an extra handful of tomatoes. I know I can sell them across town because they don't have as good tomatoes over there. It's, these become incredibly complex. And uh, this is that sort of little bit that's torn off. That's how I understand this section. I love, I love this part so much. Um, I'll go into it. At some point, we're going to do a review of this entire uh, part as well. Um, I know we're not finishing this shit today. So it specifically states that it is not in relation to excess labor, surplus. That's not surplus labor is not the same as surplus value. Um, sometimes, and it's like constituting that that is sometimes something that's lost in the recodifying. I think of uh, that it's that's something that's sometimes uh, misconstrued as being surplus value. That 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 surplus labor sometimes misconstrued as being surplus value. Yeah, and it's a it's a tough one. So like like uh, I own a pizza shop, 
and I hire the three of you to work in the pizza shop. I pay you each 10 bucks, I put $100 ingredients, and you make me $1,000. Technically, you did all of those things. Like you guys are the ones who created all of that excess value, and in some traditional way, that's sort of that excess labor. It, the challenge is that it's not quite that simple, that there is a lot of exchanges and things that are going in and out of that. And even if you talk about purely the value that's created as that singular in a vacuum system, you're also talking about, uh, I'll try to phrase this in a way, you're talking about an extra economic thing that's left over. Because if I'm able to do that, it's not just that I'm, I'm cool, I've made a thousand bucks, I've created a business that is profitable. That's, that's beyond what I've actually built. Like that, I haven't created a business that's profitable. I made fucking pizzas and you guys made some money. But with that excess capital, sure, I've, I've got excess labor. That's great. But I've made a thing. And this thing, this extra thing that's now hyper qualitative and is actually reorganizing the other pizza companies around it because now I'm able to do it because I'm paying less or I'm getting around this corner or this thing, how I enter the market becomes so deeply uh, interdependent on everything that's coming by. Um, this, this hyper complex system of collective appraisal that plays into it is this sort of secondary thing. This is not just codes turning from one thing into another. It's not just coding and decoding. Capitalism adds this axiomatic underneath it that slices off a bit. And this extra bit that's made is a little different than just codes. In fact, axiomatics stand opposed to codes. They don't want them. They want to break them down and rebuild them. And doing that, they want to create this other meta story that's happening, which is in this case a pizza place, profitable business. And that's, this is interesting and also dangerous and kind of interesting and kind of fascinating. Some, some accelerationists say this is the power of capital. Uh, other people hate it, but it's, it's, a, it's a fully broken down way of having this conversation around actually materially how these things shift from one to another. Because again, as they've sort of broken down here now in two separate paragraphs, this isn't just code of labor being turned into blank or thing being turned into X. There's excess that's being sliced off and left over, this extra economic factor that comes through. This, this extra bit that lies purely within the economic as this sort of pseudo cause and effect um, that, that plays within that. And code relations, as they say here, it's not only indirect, qualitative, and limited, but because of those characteristics, it is extra economic. And by virtue of this fact, it engineers the couplings between qualified flows. So it's now a machine that modifies other flows by going through the process. Um, it's meta. Like, it's a meta way of looking at it. I don't know how else to phrase that. It's probably a shitty wording, but that's how I think of it. Sorry. I hope that wasn't too much of a ramble. This strong-ass fucking tea today. No, it's not. It's a complicated paragraph or two. Right? No, it's a lot. Well, in feudalism... What you have is surplus labor, which existed in feudalism, of course, uh, but it was a flux that was qualitatively and temporarily, dis temporarily distinct from that of labor and consequently must enter into a composite that is itself qualitative and implies non-economic factors. And they quotes capital to sort of further that point. He goes through a handful of ways that these things have existed, but then under capital, there's a little bit more. 
And it's uh, the next sort of uh, paragraph really dives into that. Um, but before we move on, any questions or comments, please uh, try out Jack. Nemo, if you have another question, feel free. I mean, I will definitely agree these are difficult paragraphs. Um, the way I'm trying to read them, effectively, it seems to me that what they're based, so if you follow my, my previous um, interpretation of the preceding paragraphs, we went through synthesis one and two, right? And then we kind of stopped. Um, what I see them trying to do now is explain not only the second synthesis a little bit more in depth here, how it works in terms of uh, the preceding two socii and then capital um, under in the difference between coding and overcoding versus um, decoding, right? Um, so obviously capital being that tertiary one. What I see them trying to do now is to extend that point about the second synthesis. And now they're drawing out how to say why that server works, respectively. And I think that's why you're seeing the coupling in that is what, what I think they're kind of getting at here is not only how the constitution of codes provides um, extra economic um, movement of flows, right? Because the code is kind of showing us the, the objective movement of the flow, right, on the socius, um, and therefore distribution, yeah. Um, it seems like what they're trying to get at here is with this falling back on production, right? Not only is that code um, constituted in a manner that's not purely economical, um, so it's not purely a market thing, right? Which is, I think, what Brooks is trying to um, work out in his questions of how many how many women can a donkey uh, procure you, right? Um, or linen and coat as the classic uh, Marxian take. But in that sense, right, how something jurisdictional or something, I'm sorry, juridical or something political actually comes to be constitutive of codes, right? And therefore, the falling back on production not only brings the constitution of something juridical or political to bear upon the first synthesis, but actually plays a role in the constitution. Um, of anti-production upon production, right? So that way, the way that the, the unconscious will be acting here will not be purely economical, but will actually come with a falling back on, um, or this kind of dominance that they're talking about now um, of codes relative to something, say, judicial or perhaps political, as the example of feudalism provides. I would add. The, the challenge, and I think, with what I was saying and, and my, my grasping of this, as I'm, you can probably feel me sort of, you know, uh, trying to reach out and grab onto something that's a little bit more solid. The, what we're talking about under capital is the switch from uh, direct codes, the switch from, uh, how to put it, uh, everything within the, pre, the prehistoric or the primitive ultimately can be coded under the earth. Everything under the despot can be coded under the despot. Everything under capital is coded under capital. But there's a difference here. Capital isn't an all-encompassing singular code. It isn't a thing that can have everything. There's, there's a whole social field that now has an absolutely nothing that can overcode it. 
as such, the, the way that the axiomatic works is through money, because money becomes the thing that everything is therefore valued against. It's not the ox against the chicken. It's not the wives against the alliance. It's everything against money. And as such, money then grows its own rules, its own system, its own setup. And as that happens, the machines that generate around money become then determinant of how codes are decoded and recoded. And this, this is a significant shift. And it's a big deal because we're talking about the change from having our desires be able to be met or have flows, you know, albeit coded in some pretty uh, horrific ways and under some pretty awful, you know, <laughs> worlds. I'm not saying I want to go back or I'm not an anarcho-primitivist or anything. Um, but it's this push towards everything being coded under this axiomatic because everything's capital. Everything suddenly loses its alliant or filial relations as such. Everything goes through capital. And the axiomatics, because it is sort of this self-expanding thing that constantly is needing new rules, new setups, these new, uh, new things that basically sweep away the old codes, the recordings of meaning, everything gets tossed. And this temporary move that we have that's constantly changing puts like a temporary culture in place. Here's why we do things. Here's how it's done. It'll last probably a generation, maybe half a generation or less in, in some ways. And these codes of meaning get destroyed and this, this new meaning sort of gets placed in place of it. And that, that setup is very different than the way that the previous socii functioned. And this happens through capital. Everything gets recoded via capital. Not money, capital. Some of the challenges, the, the, the take you're putting forward is going to rely on the following paragraph because that's where we're going to get the big difference between, um, right? So this is the, in my take, this is the Seyrah that Sir of the preceding two socii. This next paragraph, just kind of skimming it, that's where I think your points about capital are going to be relevant because. Um, like I already see D of X and D of Y in your favorite formula coming up. Oh, God. Um, yeah, because you know yeah. what I really want in my difficult critical theory is calculus. Um, fuck. All right. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, give a read forward. And we'll continue to the next paragraph. Um, I'm going to read through and we will come back. Oh, God. Actually, no, I may stop. Where should I stop? I'm going to stop at the progression. Um, so many reasons for defining capitalism by a social axiomatic that stands opposed to codes in every respect. First of all, money, as a general equivalent, represents an abstract quantity that is indifferent to the qualified nature of the flows. But the equivalence itself points to the position of a relation without limitation. In the formula MCM, the circulation of money as capital has therefore no limits. The studies of Bohannon concerning the Tiv of the Niger River, or those of Salisbury, Salisbury concerning the Sien of New Guinea, have shown how the introduction of money as an equivalent, which makes it possible to begin and end with money, therefore never to end at all, is enough to disturb the circuits of qualified flows, to decompose the finite blocks of debt, and to destroy the very basis of codes. Secondly, the fact that remains that money as an unlimited abstract quantity 
cannot be divorced from a becoming concrete, without which it would not become capital and would not appropriate production. We have seen that this becoming concrete appeared in the differential relation, but it must be borne in mind that the differential relation is not an indirect relation between qualified or coded flows. It is a direct relation between decoded flows whose respective qualities have no existence prior to the differential relation itself. The quality of the flows results solely from their conjunction as decoded flows. Outside this conjunction, they would remain purely virtual. This conjunction is also the disjunction of the abstract quantity through which it becomes something concrete. dx and dy are nothing independent of their relation, which determines the one as a pure quality of the flow of labor and the other as a pure quality of the flow of capital. I am just going to continue. The progression is therefore the opposite of that of a code. It expresses the capitalist transformation of the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux, whence the fundamental change in the orders of power. For if one of the flows finds itself subordinated and enslaved to the other, the reason is precisely that they are not to the same power, x and y squared, for example, and that the relation is established between a power and a given magnitude. This is something that became evident as we pursued the analysis of capital and labor at the level of the differential relation between flows of financing and flows of means of payment or income. Such an extension merely signifies that capital has no industrial essence functioning other than as merchant, financial, or commercial capital. Where money would take on functions other than those deriving from its form as the equivalent. But in this way, the signs of power completely cease being what they were from the viewpoint of a code. They become coefficients that are directly economic. Instead of being doubles to the economic signs of desire and expressing for their part non-economic factors determined as dominant. That the flow of financing is raised to an entirely different power from the flow of means of payment signifies that the power has become directly economic. And yet, as paid labor, it is evident that there is no longer any need for a code in order to ensure surplus labor, when the latter is merged qualitatively and temporarily with labor itself into one and the same simple magnitude, the condition characterized by surplus value of flux. I mean, that's pretty crisp and straightforward. I think we can move on. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's nothing. Simple. Easy. Right? Right? All there in black and white. <laughs> so, I can say confidently, this paragraph is about laying out why they define capitalism by social axiomatics that stand opposed to, cap that stand opposed to codes. It's the first sentence, they just outline after that, a series of reasons that this is the case. The reasons themselves are incredibly complicated. We could spend a huge amount of time on them. Um, do you want to take any of them, Jack, or anyone? Taryn and Nemo, I know we got a bunch of people in here. If anyone wants to try to take one on, feel free. Hmm. Uh, at least regarding the first point uh, they make here, 
when they say money as a general equivalent represents an abstract quantity that is indifferent to the qualified nature of the flows reads to me in, in strict contrast to what we read uh, two paragraphs ago where they said a code determines the respective qualities of the flows um, passing through the socius. It's like here in, in capital, this specific form of coding or, or rather decoding uh, is, is not touching the, the qualities in a sense that um, it, it reproduces them or doesn't even care about them because it's just unifying everything and not reproducing something in a specific quality to handle with it but no it it uh it rips off all the qualities and making it uh, just an abstract medium of exchange uh for example in in uh maybe association to to Telcut parson and, and lumen where everything that just does something in the sense like like money uh, is just this abstract uh, exchange medium that is only characterized by its uh, relationships and by its flux and not anymore by any form of materialistic bounding any specific qualities but just by the pure exchange rate so to speak or am i totally off with this no i if I, i'm going to piggyback off that um because I started picking up on heavy Marx vibes uh, a couple couple paragraphs earlier when they started talking about um, codes and siphoning off of qualitative quantitative yeah yeah they said um, earlier quantitative siphoning off of um, by these codes uh, and that that really reminded me that of uh, kind of the beginning of capital of Marx's capital um, when he starts talking about money. Um, and the value form, right? Um, and I mean, essentially, what it what it is is uh, the distinction between qualitative and quantitative, um, where where two things that are qualitatively different are reduced to a quantitative magnitude, or to like a fixed scale that's abstract. And when two qualitative things get reduced to it. Um, they both get abstracted and objectified, um, and that's that's. Uh, uh, give me a sec. No, I think you're just spot on. I mean, it's we're talking about the shift from qualitative to quantitative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to gather my my thoughts because it's been a little bit since I've looked into this part. So I'm frantically going through but that's that's essentially the the move that marx makes and they're kind of saying the the same thing here is there's these qualitative flows um but they get decoded by the abstract um uh value of money i guess uh, they get coded into it into it but during that there is this axiomatization so i'm going to read uh, again, from Hollins. Uh, Hollins is my favorite book on this. You're going to hear me. If you don't know that by now, you should. Uh, social valuation is now quantitative rather than qualitative. Exchange value simply disregards or overrides the concrete differences between commodities rather than reducing them in the name of similarity and identity, as codes strive to do. Capitalist axioms conjoin quantified resource flows to extract a differential surplus from their conjunction. 
Whatever local codes may temporarily spring up in the process will be merely incidental and strictly subordinate to capital's axiomatic self-expansion. And so the form of coding characteristic of capital involves a contradictory process of decoding and recoding, whereby extant codes of meaning and conduct are swept away by a wave of axiomatization which generates a temporary recodification of new meanings and practices that are themselves swept away in turn by the next wave of axiomatization, and so on. It is important to note that recoding, despite its morphology, is quite unlike coding and overcoding, for capitalism provides no stable codes capable of governing the whole social field. Like decoding, recoding is a mere recomitant of axiomatization, not, sorry, concomitant of axiomatization, not the principal means of organizing social production on the socius as were coding and overcoding. This is a reason why Deleuze and Guattari distinguish capitalist surplus value as a surplus value of flows. It involves imminent flows of quantified factors of production and consumption conjoined by axioms rather than codes or overcodes, which necessarily are quant qualitative. Yeah, and I, I'm getting the sense, though I'm not certain, that um, the axioms are kind of like the value form for Marx, maybe. It's actually going to be really similar. One of the ways that they talk about this, and the reason they're bringing it into this, and they get into this a lot more in the final chapter, but thanks to this, it gives a reason why we're able to say that there's areas of capital. So let's say we have a global capitalism. Is anyone shocked that I'm saying such a thing? I don't think, I don't think so. Um, but money is not worth the same everything. Things aren't worth the same everywhere. In fact, there are areas that are in extreme poverty within the U.S., and other areas that are incredibly wealthy, and some things that are valuable in some places, and it's changing. The, the way an axiomatization operates is not through true codification, which would be systemic coding, but instead, because it's played through this weird quantitative but cultural lens, we're able to have areas where certain things don't matter as much, or we can exploit very heavily and push the capital into other places. This allows us a area-to-area-to-area setup um, that allows us to play through that. I suppose for my part, um, I, I do see the, um, so like you're, you're talking about the value forms, right, value form doing that. I do get a, a sense of a comparison being made, especially since they're going to bring in MCM. But they've been very careful to point out that uh, the return to Marx um, is not the value forms, right? So there's some difficulty being pulled here. And I think that difficulty is in how to understand the value forms in a sense, too. Because where the value forms are, I think, particularly useful, um, especially if this is a system of disequilibrium, that is not necessarily economically constituted, which, depending on how you read Marx, is a question of interpretation. Is that an economic constitution? Um, and uh, however you read it, it's an ontological point, right, which is, I think, the point here, is I think what they're trying to get at, and it's tough with this inversion in that, but I don't think they're necessarily saying it's a move from the qualitative to the quantitative. I think they're saying the manner in which codes 
as an expression of the, the qualities and the movement of the flow, right? The man or an expression of the movement of the flow. Um, come to constitute the qualities of those flows. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just real quick, because I want to stop there. Sure. I, specifically on the switch to quantitative, I don't see how it's not possible. I, I don't see how it's possible to say otherwise. So for example, um, if I have a chair and I've made it and you've made a chair and your chair is better than mine, uh, there is a way in which, yes, they're qualitatively able to be discussed as such, but the actual way that they get turned into value and money, there's no good money or bad money or slightly better made money. Like capital's capital. So as soon as they're switched over, that's it. Now, the axiomatic takes in cultural and other elements that allow, and as, they, as he talks about, that allow uh, uh, you know, pure commodification or prestige goods. These things still exist inside of this space, but generally speaking, quality is not a thing that can be transferred into money because money is money. I have one good chair money, and it's the same as one bad chair money. But again, I don't think they're putting this into an economical question. Of, and this is why I don't think the value forms are particularly useful in that, that reading. I don't think they're put into the question of how much lens, how much coat. Um, I think rather, if you're going to apply the value forms, it's going to be and, and this is where it's, it's a, in some sense, it's going to be a criticism of structuralism itself, actually. It's going to be in the, the, the constitution of differential relations through the second synthesis that actually constitutes qualities, I think. Yeah, and so in that sense, um, I, don't, I don't know necessarily that they're moving toward quantity, but they're moving into what appears to be a magnitude. Um, which does kind of sound like quantity, sure, but they're getting into a magnitude of flux here, yeah. Yeah, that's that's part of what makes me think that um, they're kind of appropriating Marx in this section. Um, I mean, they quote Marx of... twice. Like the the opening line yeah. that they have there is just. I'll let you finish just real quick. The the circulation of money as capital is therefore no limits is from capital. Absolutely. Um, but this is the thing, right? And, and, and this is kind of a footnote. There's this point about um, something other than economic pressure happening here. Like you were saying, there's this um, question of the socio, and this is where Marx is always useful, the sociological conditions, right? Where even Marx himself is saying, yes, this is not necessarily only an economical question. It's actually possible that something political is um, bound up in the constitution of qualities, right? Something juridical, something legal, is bound up in the in the constitution of these differential relations, these um, codes of flows. And I think that's what's kind of difficult here is, and this this is where it would be a criticism of value forms, but also a re-engagement with them. Um, it would cause us to think then that there's something in the differential relationships um, of the value forms, right, of all the commodities and money, which is going to give you MCM, right? That's like your your pre um, pre ontological basis for that, if you like. Um, there's something in that constitution that's happening differently 
undercapital as opposed to the despotic and the primitive. That seems to be bound up in the relationships as, um, as far as flows go, right? The constitution of their codifications or the axiomatic decodification, uh, decodifications. I, I agree with this. Um, considering Altusset at Balibar, like, um, I, I don't know a lot about Altusset at Balibar, but as far as I understand them, they, uh, both of them, uh, focused on like the how interconnected interconnected the society like in terms of all systems like economic practice like or legal practice or political practice or all, all sort of things so and also considering like the concept of socius here I mean delusion term and then it all together like delusion try to emphasize that we should like uh think of the integration of all kind of possible variables like the fact is um not i mean beyond like economic kind of practices and also what i'm thinking is that like i just uh, spotted the word power like i'm wondering like uh, in this section the Deleuze, i lose uh, try to connect as a powerful like the variable factor like a power power is emphasized here like how power like a uh, change all kind of these things all together like like a Foucauldian you know thinking well and this is where this I think is so challenging too is like for Marx and then this is your classic capital one chapter one that everybody absolutely hates slogging through because it is a slog but um, to your point about power and law, the qualities are going to be the use value of the commodity, right? Um, the quantities are going to be your exchange value. So it's a question of how do the qualities of linen satisfy a want versus how many linen um, can you uh, obtain for how many um, cloth, right? Just to put in the, the basic. But I do see where you guys are coming from with the quantitative because there is still this question of financing flow of means of payment or income but this is where it's and i don't have a, a great answer to this but this is where this section is particularly interesting in power because if we are talking about capital in the third synthesis now they finally brought it in and this becoming concrete they're tying it to the conjunct, which is particularly interesting because that would suggest then that the becoming concrete is a question of subjectivity. And that puts a whole different complexion on the matter. Uh, so for me, when we're talking about qualitative or quantitative, qualities can't, qualitative is not economic. It qualitative is a thing. I'm not saying there's no such thing as a qualitative aspect. You're going to make a better chair than me. I'm going to make a better handkerchief than you uh, that specifically these people want. And that's great. But this, this is not, those are not economic elements. Economic elements are the quantitative. Because if I make however much pizza I make in my shitty pizza parlor, it can be the best fucking pizza in the world. That's great. I'm, that's awesome. And I'm able to do that. I'm exchanging. But that's not an economic play. The moment 
the economic comes in, which is when things get shifted to capital, that moment where the rules get you know decoded. The code of good pizza, which is qualitative, code has a qualitative characteristic, gets decoded and then axiomatized, then recoded into something that's a little bit different. And that happens through capital. As soon as that happens, done. There's no, there, again, there's no, on the side of capital, there's no such thing as good or bad capital or slightly tastier pepperoni in my capital. Like these, this conjunct that they're talking about, because it is that, it's the, the interaction point where these things kind of come to be. And that's where the, the axiomatic is sitting to, to, you know, reify it and turn it into this recoding. Up until there, it can be totally quali quali qualitative. That's great. But a qualitative cannot be economic. The quantitative is where we actually hit the economic. And as such, we're making that shift from the qualitative into the, the qualitative into the quantitative. And we're making a big significant move here as money becomes this thing. The, the example they use about the, the TIV is a great one. Uh, they had these exchanges societies and then uh, a form of money was uh, put in. I believe it was uh, brass bars uh, that were kind of became sort of a universalist version of exchange. And that broke down their debt system completely. Now, there's debate about how much or how big, and uh, uh, David Graeber even wrote about them, like the TIV. Um, uh, worth reading, by the way. Um, I think that's when that was in debt. He wrote about that. Um, but the, this, the, the way that this gets transferred from qualitative to quantitative is the point. Like they say specifically, code relation is not only indirect, qualitative, and limited. Because of these characteristics, it is also extra economic. It's outside of the economy. And by virtue of this fact, engineers the coupling between qualified flows. Consequently, it implies a system of collective appraisal and evaluation, a set of perception. This is, this is the, 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 um, uh, the prehistoric, the, the primitive they're talking through here. The shift they're talking about now is this move of, these, uh, of everything be going through this, their phrase, the fact remains that money as an unlimited abstract quantity cannot be divorced from a becoming concrete without which it would not become capital and would not appropriate production. This becoming concrete is this level. This is how it appropriates because it becomes a thing but it, it can't become a qualitative thing. It's an axiomatic that ultimately is enabling this. You can't do it through code. Looks like a, I have a question of your idea of a quantification of the economic um, economics. So yes. because like, you know, yeah, yeah the for example, the price is decided like a, based on the variable, variable um, factors like, you know, not only just like, the the quant quantity quant quant quantification of economic never like a uh, is decided by only like numbers right you um I, I think you agree with this because because um uh, once again like I'd like to like uh, bring Alcester and Balibal because like all kind of for example economic conditions should be um based on like a legal system. Or ideal, ideal kind of like a basis of a society, or whole thing, whole thing would be like the um involved with the economic decision, and then, and and this um capital, I mean the society of capitalism, like 
de- definitely like you, you, like even like a psychological condition of human beings and everything is like should be conceded like in terms of like economic um economic thing is actually so i i don't know like how we can like just solely like think of um quanti- quantity quantity of economic quantification of economics the only thing we should consider here cuz the point here i think to lose try to bring the idea of like the integration the whole kind of factors and then and then possibly according to society uh, in some society like a legal thing would be like have has more power than other other factors and then that kind of a power would influence the coding or decoding or the deterioration the reiteration whole thing so the point is the how 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 all kind of like uh, you know the factors are inter interdependent or interconnected with each other that's kind of a point of this part I'm thinking, but I might be wrong, definitely. No, and it, this is not an easy one. And I'm, I'm acting, I'm fairly certain in what I'm saying, but it'll change tomorrow. So don't worry about it. Um, uh, the, every time I read these books and I end up reading some secondary things, someone links, it changes my opinion on a lot of this shit to be just flat. But I will say, uh, for me, when I talk about quantitative versus qualitative, uh, Look, why is Jack's chair better than mine? It's qualitative. It's not, there's no measurable reason that a thing is better or worse. These are, uh, not to say it's purely subjective because that has secondary meanings, but qualitative is, is these other judgments that come with it. The, the nature of social organization under capital is quantitative. Things get transferred into their labor value. Things get transferred into their money value. And Yes, some things are more expensive than others, and some homes are worth more than others. I'm not saying like there's no such thing as a quality of a thing, but when I say qualitative, I'm I'm being very particular in like the one versus the commodification of the thing, which changes the relations of a lot of different elements. So, like the idea that um, workers in general, uh, there is no qualitative difference between people feel free to go to McDonald's and show me where anyone gives a fuck about the qualitative difference between labor at any one of the McDonald's that exists. It's a quantitative position uh, and it's a quantitative type of labor. And also with that, the difference between labor and surplus labor is kind of a qualitative thing too. These, these become very difficult for us to separate, for us to, to break apart. These are qualitative judgments. And I don't, see how they exist outside of direct coding and codification as we know it and the way that it's been described up till this point in this section. I really like a love you or the way you are talking because like you always like passionately like make people involved to the old discussion. And um, um, regarding to the McDonald's that big example, like I'm wondering like if that is kind of a good example of like contradiction or like you know like a the problem of a capitalism like how can we quantify like the labor the quality of labor like a, i mean very precisely it i think that's impossible and then something is involved like to decide the quality of labor i believe well, oh, it's, I, it's, I, 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 no it's it's a it's yeah. a nightmare because when, when we start talking about the nature of 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 a thing getting made the the what the the qualitative element um, I'm going to go with NFTs because they're to me like the Mad Max Ayn Rand version of capital gone amok. Um, 
they feel free to go look at the value of art. And I'm doing that in big fuck quotes. Um, the, the nature of a lot of these NFTs, it's garbage art across the board, but some of the more expensive whenevers are these are numbers. And when I say numbers, there's one called the end project. That's just random numbers. It doesn't do anything. Just random numbers that other people can do stuff with. That is a what, but capitalism doesn't give a fuck what is made. It cares that something is made. As long as there's surplus value realized, fucking off you go. That's why we have a pet rock. That's why we have Trolls the movie. That's why we have Black Widow and Marvel and all these failures. It doesn't matter. None of this matters. The only thing that matters is that something is made. Like we have fantasies. Like this is, I would think they're arguing that we have this fantasy in our head that we have lots of good shit that's constantly being made and we're making qualitative ju judgments between this book or that. The books we read as a group barely exist in the world's market. No one gives a shit about good writing. No one gives a shit about any of this stuff across the board. The things that matter is that something is made. That's all that capital cares about. And I can give countless, countless versions of massively popular money-making extra production things that are creating surplus value that are literally worthless because all that matters is that something is made. That's all capital gives a fuck about. That would be my argument. Sorry. I don't mean to ramble too much. No, 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 no. Very, very worth. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like, it make, make me think twice, three times. Nice. Thank you. So I was having this discussion with a, a bunch of people who work in tech and uh, there's this fantasy of uh, deep fakes we were talking about. I said, what's the good use of a deep fake? There isn't one, by the way, so don't even try. But generally, it's, it's a purely abusive technology that people are investing tons of money in. Basically, I can do it to create fake news. I can put people I hate into pornography or saying things that they never said. And there's really, or I can make dead, the one good use is dead celebrities and actors coming back in movies, which I just, that's your good use is disgusting. but. The, this thing is having billions of dollars poured into it as technology. And why? Well, it's because all we care about, all we care about is that. All we care about is something is being made, something's being done. As long as we're doing something, moving forward, doing something. We all have a fantasy that we're part of some bigger thing here, but we're fucking not. Like capitalism just needs production. As long as there's surplus value, that shit's the only thing. Uh, go, go watch uh, the top 100 videos on Facebook right now and tell me that there's a qualitative essence to capital. Top 1,000, top 10,000. Doesn't exist. Only thing that matters is that production is happening that creates surplus value. And that's the difference, is the shift from qualitative to quantitative. And it can be qualitative. I would like to say what we're doing here is fairly qualitative. We're not really influenced by capital. Um, we, we have a Patreon that makes $40 a month that literally covers uh, two, I, I pay $4 a month for the server and the other shit that we have on it. Um, it's, we don't, we're, not, we're a little outside of that. What we do here is, I could argue qualitative. I, we have podcast friends, Acid Horizon, qualitative generally, but even they, and if we were to do this merchandise, there's a, just making something and having surplus is the only thing that matters. Surplus value on Twitter, surplus value of our tweets, surplus value of our merchandise, surplus value of anything 
that's what survives. And that's the thing that matters here. And that's, we, we have it qualified because it's codified. I'm creating a thing, I'm coding things, but it shifts and it changes. And then that axiomatic happens, bam, that's, it doesn't give a fuck about the qualities. They'll, no, no, the, the dope shirts absolutely generate surplus value. And it's, hey, everyone's got to survive, like welcome to capital, but that's the nature of the push. If the shirts weren't meme if they were like really out there artistic and weren't designed in a certain way to really, you know, be attractive to a very specific corner of, of theory Twitter, would they be successful? Would surplus value be created? Would they continue to be big and grow? I would, I would ask, well, how about philosophy tube? If it wasn't consistently kicking off excess, like these things exist, they, they exist because of the nature of being turned into a quantitative element. We see them as qualitative, but that's us. We can do that. I can see literally anything as qualitative. It's not hard. I can justify whatever. And so that's like this last line of here where they say the, the, the flow of financing is raised to an entirely different power from the flow of means of payment. This signifies that the power has become directly economic. And yet, as regards paid labor, it is evident that there is no longer any need for a code in order to ensure surplus labor when the latter is merged qualitatively and temporarily with labor itself into one and the same simple magnitude. The condition characterized by the surplus value of flux, it's all transferred, it's all recoded. It's shifted because it's all about the flux, the differential X and differential Y. It's all that matters is the way that those two relate. The actual values are almost irrelevant in and of themselves. So the part I'm disagreeing with, though, is that there has been an effacement of qualities toward a transition of quantities. Again, like the, the whole thing I'm saying about the value forms and that, at an ontological level rather than simply a purely economical one, there is a question of how qualities are constituted which for Marx is use value, right? That's what qualities give you is the use value, the want satisfaction of consumption, which latches onto this section kind of nicely. Um, the, the point I'm making is that I don't think quality has been delighted to develop quantity. That is to say, um, whether that's exchange value or simple quantification, right? There's definitely quanta in that involved, and I don't disagree there. But my, my point is that I think what they're working out here is how qualities and quantities are constituted through the second and third syntheses particularly um, at a difference of codification and uh, overcodification, first and second socius, versus decodification in the third, uh, in the third socius. Because I, as I read it, yes, there are still some questions about quantity, but um, the way that the relationships, such as MCM, are even going to be constituted is to still constitute this question of um, quality, kind of the properties um, of things, right, of flows, if you like, but without reference to a code now, which is the, the real rub of the, cap, uh, the point about capital. And yes, um, I, I do think I agree that there's still a question of quantities, because as they write, and this will be my final point, uh, second, this is 249 for Penguin people, 
unless you're a, a puffin like Mr. Poppers. Secondly, the fact remains that money as an unlimited abstract quantity cannot be divorced from a becoming concrete without which it would not become capital and would not appropriate production. We have seen that this becoming concrete appeared in the differential relation, but it must be more in mind that the differential relation is not an indirect relation between qualified or coded flows. It is a direct relation between decoded flows whose respective qualities have no existence prior to the differential relation itself. The quality of the flows results solely from their conjunction as decoded flows. Outside this conjunction, they would remain purely virtual. This conjunction is also the disjunction of the abstract quantity throughout, I'm sorry, through which it becomes something concrete. Dx and dy are nothing independent of their relation, which determines that the one is a pure quality of the flow of labor, and the other is a pure quality of the flow of capital. The progression is therefore the opposite of that of the code. It expresses the capitalist transformation of the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux. I think the great challenge here is how to understand quantity and quality um, as they're basically being produced here, right? Um, and it's effectively the second and third synthesis, but I don't have too much more to offer than that at this time. So I'm going to just respond quick, um, and then I think we'll probably call it for the day. I'm going to read from Holland, because I can't help it. It's the way it works. Social valuation, this is uh, in, within capital, is now quantitative rather than qualitative. Exchange value simply disregards or overrides the concrete differences between commodities rather than reducing them in the name of similarity and identity, as codes strive to do. Capitalist axioms conjoin quantified resource flows to extract a differential surplus from their conjunction. Whatever local codes may temporarily spring up in the process will be merely incidental and strictly subordinate to capital's axiomatic self-expansion. Again, I'm not saying that they are getting rid of, we don't have qualitative anymore. What I'm saying is the only thing capital gives a shit about is dx over dy, the calculus. Because it's not about the value of dx, which would be qualitative. It's not about the value of dy, which would be kind of qualitative too in its own way. It's between the two, we have the delta. The delta between the two is what determines whether or not there's surplus value. That's the only thing that matters. That's the only thing capital gives a shit about. And so it will create axioms in order to further that delta. Everything else beneath that, like there's, sure, I can say I've got better stuff or anything. Like there's that. But as far as the economic system, there's no such thing as quality. Yeah, I just can't agree with that. Uh, D of X and D of Y are nothing independent of the relation, which determines the one is a pure quality of the flow of labor, and the yes. other is a pure quality of the flow of capital. There's very clearly quality. Yes, I'm agreeing with you. But I'm saying the delta between them is the delta between them a quality? Regarding that part, I agree with you. But like, the whole thing, like, I mean, the point of the, okay, let, let me think twice and then I will bring some more evidence and I will tell All you. All right, come on, Tiernan, you get in here. Yep. Uh, 
that's that's like the the falling back upon right like it's it's necessary there has to be codes for there to be decoding but um it always it always falls back upon that and capital exists quantitatively falls back on quantitatively again to say that it's the delta we have the two like codes are a thing i'm not saying codes disappear they don't even argue they don't argue codes disappear they there's coding because that there has to be for there to be decoding so that like they're not saying it's all gone it's not like the schizophrenic limit we're within capital or within the system but we go through the process of having the codes which are these products these things this blah 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 all that and at some point when that conjunction happens when these things ram into each other and the dx over dy happens we lose the qualitative and it becomes a purely quantitative thing because it's abstracted we don't have again uh if i give you a million dollars, right? And you have a million bucks and you spread it around and you do whatever, you don't have some dollars that are better than others. The, the qualitative has been lost within it. Now, some of those dollars were for a better chair. Some of those dollars were for a better book that you liked more, but ultimately they're just dollars and it's purely quantified and everything is ultimately valued by that. No, there is, again, I'm not saying things don't have qualities or that there's no codes, just that capitalism does not give a shit about them. That it's purely about the DX over DY delta. Not DX, not DY, the delta. And I will fight you in the schoolyard at three o'clock, Jack. <laughs> uh, then I would have to point out that if it's a ratio, right, it's a question of the quotient. Yes. That money as a general equivalent represents an abstract quantity that is indifferent to the qualified nature of the flows. Money doesn't, capital doesn't give a shit about quality. Yeah, I, I just simply don't agree. D of X and D of Y are nothing independent of the relation which determines the one is pure quality. Wait, say that one more time for and, me. And this is, this is exactly what I'm disagreeing with. I don't, I don't agree that it's quantity and then there's no question of quality because ontologically there's going to be qualities. Um, just like I don't agree that in a question of quality there will be no there will be no place for quantity. Um, but I do think there's how a question can, of how how, how, how does the dollar that you like you make a chair, I give you fifty bucks. How does that dollar tell anyone how good that chair was? Or what quality, what type of chair it was? But the quality is not necessarily a, a question of uh, market competition. Quality can simply be a question, like, like I said earlier, like the properties that something, in this case, a flow can be said to have. Name, name one property that carries from chair that you made and you cared about to the dollar, one of the dollars you made from selling it. Any quality, name one. I mean, the point is consumption, right? So if you're, so I guess if you want to do MCM of like lemon money coat, or I guess coat, uh, yeah, lemon money coat, there's a consumption of lemon of, of lemon of lemon to produce a coat, right? That means in that exchange, there's also going to be a question of the use value, and this is just Marxian economics. There's going to be a question of what to use for, what to consume um, with the lemon. The consumption of lemon uh, lemon is to use the useful properties of lemon to create a coat, right? 
Um, and in doing so, you're using the qualities that basically allow women to retain somebody's body heat, right? To produce, um, I mean, women can be pleasurable on the skin, right? It doesn't have to be as scratchy as wool. Qualitative um, difference here. When that is then transferred into the coat, it can then be, right? So this is your MCM point. It can then be entered into a new transformation into money, right? To liquidation. Yeah, but we're talking about, okay, we have Marx's, the, the MCM is unique because what he's talking about is the change from CMC to MCM. That's why this comes up in capital. CMC is commodity, moved into money, moved back to capital. Now, I mean, uh, commodities, commodities, money, commodities. The, the, the shift here is coding. This is straight coding. Like it's fucked up. But it's coding and they talk, they open the section even talking about specifically uh, this type of thing where they talk about the TIV, which is a great example where they have a uh, commodity, they exchange it for, for gold, for the brass bars, and then they turn it into commodities. The, the loop moves back to commodities. The shift is when it goes from money to commodity to money. Now, that is capital as Mark, that, this is the shift that Marx sort of talks about there in this move where money uh, is a sort of commodity in the first one, the first version, but afterwards commodity is valued in money. There's a difference in the way that these flows are codified. That's the shift Marx was talking about. Uh, he said that ultimately they're kind of the same. They both have uh, money turning into commodity, commodity turning into money, but it's the order that we I don't, I perceive them in, use value, uh, is, is CMC. There's no use value in MCM. That's not how it works. MCM is, is, a, is actually about surplus. And this shift, money becomes indistinguishable and you exchange money essentially for itself because the commodity is effectively money. Ultimately, you end up with an excess of surplus value. That was Marx's point of the MCM inside of that section of capital. That I mean, that we're talking about purely non-qualitative at that point. The decommodification of everything, where money, everything's money, instead of money being a commodity. I'm like 99% sure. Fuck, I need to go back and reread Capital now. God damn it. Oh, Althusser, wonderful. This is what I need. Let's see, let's see where he's got MCM. He does not. Yeah, and I'm going to find it in here. But that's, that's my reading of how I understand the MCM reference here, that they're talking about the shift, like Marx did, from commodity, money as a commodity to commodities becoming money. And that change. This, this, is, this is capital. That's the circuitry, right? MCM, CM, MC, CMC. That's on. Yeah, I mean, I was using CMC because you asked for an example of the quality amount of consumption. Well, but yes, to your CMC, point about MCM. CMC is qualitative. CMC can be qualitative. MCM is not okay. because by, by, again, a dollar that I pay for a hooker, a dollar that I pay for cocaine, or I pay for a Patreon to the DGQC, we're on uh, Patreon DGQC, uh, it's the same dollar. There's no dollar difference. It's not like one is bad money. It's all money. 
So what's what's the difference in quality for one dollar for another dollar for another dollar in value? I understand that there's values we place along those, but I'm asking genuinely, what's the what's the qualitative difference? So even Marx points out that with its change value, there is still use value. It's two necessary sides to the commodity. He explicitly is, says CMC, the CMC is where use value is used. MCM does not have use value. He's, he's fairly explicit about this one. I don't know about that, but regardless, I mean, it is enough to disturb the circuits of qualified flows to decompose. So I do see your point that quality is still being um, impaired here, but the point about MCM, even though it is, I do agree that it's talking about quantity, is to get a how it affects quality nonetheless. And it is, as I'm reading this, it's a constitution of quantity and quality. It's not an effacement of the one in favor of the other. Oh, I, I, I guess I just disagree. So let's take it apart. I, and I'm sorry, everyone. I'm just going to go long on this. I don't really care because this is a great discussion. Um, so we have commodity, money, commodity. In that exchange, I start with a chair. I sell it to a guy for 50 bucks. And then with that 50 bucks, I buy a mule. My money's gone. There's no secondary excess capital, nothing. I exchange my money. It's gone. That's it. It's an exchange for the product bought. This is pure use value. It gets fully spent. There's no secondary holding on to money begetting money, commodity, money, commodity. In money, commodity, commodity, where I start with money and I move to commodity, the person who sold me that shit, like it's, it's, I get my money again. That money isn't spent. It's not gone in the same way that with a commodity, if I make a chair and I sell that to someone, that chair's gone. With commodities, there's use value. Someone's going to go use that fucking chair. With money, I'm going to go use that fucking money. But that's not how it transfers with MCM. Instead, it's about money coming back to me. I'm essentially loaning it to the person that I've paid for. I buy a chair from you. I'm kind of just putting the money out into the market, knowing I'm getting that shit back. Like this, it's an advance. It's, this is not use value, this is exchange value. And this is, this pushes us to a place where uh, like the only switch is really the amount of money or capital that's in this. This is the setup that allows us to have that excess labor, that excess value, that surplus value that is generated. Like this is where it comes into play here. There we go. Ollie has a, a reference. Let me see. 247. Let me see if I've got a. Are there even pages in this? What have you sent me, Ollie? Oh, no. Whatever. I'll find my way through it. Um, Jack, that's so just to go back, that's commodity versus money, as I understand it. Using those examples, can you break down where you're seeing inside of the second one quality being maintained and it not being quantitative? But I'm not trying, I don't think I necessarily have to because it's not a point about what parts exactly thinks here. The, if we look at the test, again, I can agree with you that there's a question of quantity, but I don't think that the question of quantity of face is the question of qualities. I think rather it's a way in which the two are, const are mutually constitutive at that. But um, where I might be able to kind of agree with you is 
and I don't know that this is necessarily in order, but this is a series of four propositions they're giving us. There is a point that they're making about quantity in relation to quality. And I, I'm suspecting that it's um, co-constitutive, but I'm not entirely sure either. But where I see them talking about quantity and quality, they're, they're writing, to your point about MCM, they're talking about the limitless aspect here. First of all, money as a general equivalent represents an abstract quantity that is indifferent to the qualified nature of the flows. But the equivalence itself points to the position of a relation without limitation in yeah, the that, formula that, MCM. The beginning of that sentence is, money as a general equivalent represents an abstract quantity that is indifferent to the qualified nature of the flows. Right. So that's saying quantity doesn't give a shit about quality, the quality of the flows, the codification. They're, they're literally saying one is qualified nature, but the abstract quantity doesn't give a fuck. Money doesn't give a shit about the qualified nature of the flows. Well, it does in one part because it's when, in terms of decoding, that's one of the things that's going to be destroyed as well as um, disseminated is going to be quality. But there's an additional point they're going to make following that, right? The factor second fact remains that money is an unlimited abstract quantity, cannot be divorced from a becoming concrete, without which it would not become capital and would not appropriate production. We have seen that the becoming concrete appeared in the differential relation, but it must be borne in mind that the differential relation is not an indirect relation between qualified or coded flows, as it would be in um, a primitive or despotic. You go on to write, it is a direct relation between decoded flows who respect, whose respective qualities have no existence prior to the differential relation itself. The quality of the flows results solely from the, their conjunction as decoded flows. Outside this conjunction, they would remain purely virtual. This conjunction is also the disjunction of the abstract quantity through which it becomes something concrete. Yes. I Right, but there's there's points going on here about the constitution of quantity and quality. And I, they're talking directly. So as I read that, I'll, I'll say it one more time. They're talking about the death of quality and the birth of quantity, like in no, this moment. I don't agree. This conjunction, talking, they say, it says cleanly, this conjunction is in flows, the quality of flows, and out flows the abstract quantity, which becomes something concrete. They're very clear about that line that's the conjunction of these two, these two qualities, these two qualities of flows, dx, dy, slam together. And in that moment is when they actually gain so value. And let me ask you a question there. Yes. If it is the death of quality, how do you explain the following sentence? The quality of the flows results solely from their conjunction as decoded flows. Yes. So if quality is dead, how does it result? It resolves in, well, it falls back on itself resolving is one way I would definitely say it, but I would more say it's not like it ends there. What I'm, in that moment when it is, uh, when the quantity appears, when DX and DY have their conjunction, they say specifically, uh, uh, one sec, the quality of the flows results solely from their conjunction as decoded flows. Until they become slammed together and decoded, 
they actually don't have quality. So in that conjunction, we see out two sides. Uh, if I had to say, we're talking about Kronos and not Aeon inside of this. We're talking about two sort of directions that this thing flows. In one hand, we actually have the quality that flows out, uh, almost falls back on itself. Out the other side is the, uh, the creation of essentially the excess, the capital, the money, the, the, quantitative the quantitative flow that comes out the other side. Once that happens, though, it's, that's the end. No, the flows, we can look back on and go, oh, yes, here's how good they were. Here's the quality and all those things. But the value doesn't, it's ambivalent. It doesn't give a shit. The, the other side that's made, it's like, cool, that's fun. Have fun with your culture and all your local little customs. That's what the axiomatic does. It creates those for us uh, in the same way that I would say the subject uh, pretends that it did a thing. And, and assigns those afterwards as sort of a quasi-cause, this does a lot of the same thing as well. This is not happening after the fact. That's how I read it. The progression is therefore the opposite of that of a code. It expresses the capitalist transformation of the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux. Whence the fundamental change in the order of powers? For if one of the flows is subordinate to the slave to others, the reason is precisely they are not the same power. And that is the relation is established between power and a magnitude. This is something that became evident as we pursued the analysis of capital and labor at the level of the differential relation between flows of financing, means of payment, or income. Such an extension merely signifies that capital is no industrial essence functioning other than as merchant, financial, or commercial capital, where money would take on functions other than those deriving from its form as the equivalent. This, this shift of capital that they're talking about, again, shifting from money, as a big play, also is feeding into my sort of understanding of this, where we're talking about the moment that we have the delta between dx and dy, as they say, in that moment, the qualitative elements are judged, delta made, out the other side comes quantity. As this goes, the, the rest of this, this is why money doesn't matter here. This is purely the merchant financial and commercial capital. This is, uh, purely in this direction, doesn't give a shit, again, about anything qualitative. It, axiomatic may, and the axiomatic does this sort of in reference, but it's solid. I, so I do, it, it sounds like what you're trying to say is that when there's a flow, it is quantitative before it is qualitative. And I agree that's an interesting idea. No, I'm that's not what I'm to... saying. I'm saying it's qualitative before it's quantitative. A, a coded flow is always qualitative first. A code is necessarily qualitative. If it begins qualitative, then you're going to maintain then that the quantitative breaks down that qualitative aspect, yes? Specifically the axiomatic that changes it into capital. But then you have to allow then that there is still a reconstitution of quality. In what way? Well, and this is... What I was about to follow up with, I said, I do agree that's interesting. So there's a point they're making about a sharing of the conjunct, right, between the two, the, the last two syntheses. Um, so at this point about outside this conjunction, they would remain purely virtual. The qualities themselves would never uh, have this becoming concrete, right? Uh, and which is interesting. But they go on to say, so we've got DX and DY up in the Hopefully I can find this on my finger. 
Give me one moment, please. This conjunction is also the, here we go. Um, the quality of the flows results solely from their conjunction as decoded flows. Outside this conjunction, they would remain purely virtual. This conjunction is also the disjunction of the abstract quantity through which it becomes something concrete. And as I read that, there's something happening in the second synthesis, which I do agree is, is they're focusing on a quantitative aspect right there. But there's something in that that seems to help concretize uh, qualities nonetheless, and so much so that they become concretized, as, as I'm reading this, in the third synthesis, which would provide uh, effectively subjectivity, right? But um, to that point, then, there's a, there is a sharing of a point between the disjunctive and the conjunctive that seems to, that seems to pertain to both the quantitative and qualitative. How would you define quantitative versus qualitative? Well, the qualitative, I mean, it's more or less like adjectives, right? But I mean, you know, like an Aristotelian sense, it's just the, the properties and that of which something uh, has. Um, for Marx, it's going to be no. the properties by which something uh, satisfies a want or a desire. Uh, quantity, I think, is more or less the numbering of whatever that thing is. So to me, I go with, so maybe I have too much to lose on the brain. Deleuze very particularly has two definitions of qualitative and quantitative that he brings up, I want to say, in fuck, Bergsonism uh, and maybe something else. Uh, he, he talks about two types of multiplicities, that of reason and logic and that of poetry, or that of the quantitative and the qualitative. The quantitative multiplicity is one that can be counted, reasoned with, an empiric sort of back end. Uh, qualitative is that which cannot be counted. Uh, a, he, the mood you're in, for example, would be qualitative, not quantitative. Uh, how many fingers you have, it's not qualitative. Those are, it is a quality of a thing, sure, but it is not qualitative, as Deleuze, Deleuze talks about it in a few other texts. So uh, in What is Philosophy? He talks about specifically reason and poetry as quantitative multiplicities and qualitative multiplicities uh, in that order. So that is fascinating. Uh, I'd be curious to learn more there, although I have not read those books. Um, but I, I think the question you and I are working at here then is effectively trying to understand the decoding process. Yes. Um, that's why I'm harping on this. It's worth. It's a worthwhile thing, and I'm not I mean, necessarily yeah, I, I saying you're making bad points. Um, no, no, I don't. Not at all. This is not fun. This is look the 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 codification, decodification. I mean, it's kind I of mean, fun. we we could talk about recoding because they're very clear here that recoding doesn't just mean coding again. That it's actually like a weaker, shittier version of coding. But that's a whole fucking other thing for us to talk about. But specifically, the nature of the way we talk about qualitative versus quantitative, uh, let me re-say with different words then. The elements of your art that you may create, because Nemo is talking about art here, um, 
art does extremely well in a capitalist system, but there's, there's reasons for that and only certain kinds. Um, uh, art, as we may say, or poetry, uh, has ineffable aspects. I'm going to try to avoid using qualities or quantities at all. Has ineffable aspects or things that I can't quite put my finger on that make it grand. I've, I've stood in front of Basquiat paintings. I've stood in front of some extraordinary pieces of work that moved me once in a while to tears. That feeling, I cannot quantify, and I really want to. Like, I've been reading a ton of stuff in the sense of, uh, sin, Logic of Sensation with Bacon by Deleuze and the works following that. Really good attempts. But still, those are, to me, that qualitative. Now, those things, capital doesn't give a shit about. Now, there's a quantity aspect. Now, that is things that can be counted. How many you're putting out, uh, how many colors it has, uh, various things like that. There's NFTs that do some hilarious stuff. These aspects, these two differences are where I'm talking about the shift. When I say your chair, your chair, how good it is, I don't mean literally you make a better chair than me. I mean, there's some level of that, but that's, there's, there's quantifiable differences. How many years it lasts, how much extra work it goes into, does it fit within this? I'm talking about the ineffable qualities that makes something. And that specifically is within the flows that is codified. And these are things that uh, within society, we may call something a beautiful piece of art. Then once capital transforms it or because of capital, we value things differently. We automatically quantify, we move it into that realm that changes these things or what even qualifications or qualifications a thing may have. That's the, if I'm going to be very particular, those are the the shifts that I've been talking about here. And so at the moment of decoding, the, quali the quality or the, the um, sorry, um, the qualitative that is lost is uh, ineffable and difficult. And uh, you can put it in once upon a time, Snapple, I'm not joking when I say this, was seen as like a really high-end juice drink. As some of us are old enough to remember this time where it was like, oh, and there was a, there was a, oh, amongst it. If you're drinking a Snapple, it was a thing. This happens. This happens with drinks now. Like you pick one out. Kids. It sounds like a Seinfeld episode now. <laughs> it, it is. They, they did an episode about this, but this, this, but did they? yeah, this, this, this quality that is added to it that's ineffable ultimately becomes destroyed by capital. Now, it's not that quality is eliminated, but that at some point it gets turned into this extra bit of excess. And then at some point you go in and it's in the Walmart section right next to Sobe and they sell it in mass and they have, they're down to four flavors and no one gives a shit about the product anymore. And that shift is the change. That's the thing that only is the thing that matters because the axiomatic takes in the qualities and the qualities have all these flows and the qualities DX over DY, the brilliance of the labor that went into it and how much value that is and all of these things that are ineffable, but coded and they're coded in those flows. In the moment they disintegrate, when they collide, lo and behold, out the other side, purely quantification. And examples of that are Basquiat paintings. Um, I love Basquiat. His art being worth 80 you know, $18 million, $30 million is absurd in so many ways to me. That's, it's, they don't give a shit about so many other things. There's no, there's no ineffable aspect there. There's, there's rules and reasons and axiomatics that play with this and capital plays in its own way. So there's, 
this change is one of the things they're talking about. And the shift when we move from CMC to MCM is at the core of it. Mm -hmm. If I could focus on one piece of your... Please, I'll let you have the last word and then we'll, we'll close out for the day because this is going to... We could literally do this for three, hour, three or four more hours. I found it a really interesting conversation. And uh, anytime we can talk about Seinfeld and Snapple is a good day for the DGQC. Um, but uh, I guess to make the point then, I notice you're talking about uh, feelings and relation qualities. And that's interesting to me because that is the third synthesis, right? The I feel, or at least one way of talking about it, one perspective on it. And I think then, um, with the painting and that, that you would feel these things. Gets into the the subjectivity of it all, the conjunct, right? And if quality is going to be related to that, as, as I think you've said it is, then there is still a re there is still a constitution of it. I, I think where you and I may be seeing the same thing um, is that there is this question of the, if, if quality is derived from the, uh, the codification of flows, right? Now that's not the game capital place. I think you and I are in alignment there because it's going to disseminate and destroy those codes, right? Uh, nonetheless, there will still be expression here, interestingly enough. Um, and with that, I, I do think they're still moving into that third synthesis. Um, and with it, I do think there is a question of these qualities in that, whereby um, there is a re I should be careful here, perhaps a reconstitution, but at least a constitution, because we're seeing how the conjunct, the third synthesis, mates qualities um, become concrete as opposed to them remaining in virtuality. And I, I think then, because I agree with you, the, the way art works, and in some ways I understand, and in some ways I don't. I, I kind of think Oscar Wilde got it right when he said art is inherently useless. Uh, <laughs> it didn't hold up in court, but it's a, it's a valiant effort. Um, but there is something in relation to that um, uh, perspective on, on, on art and um, money that nonetheless does seem to do something to our subjectivity and does seem to come with this becoming concrete of qualities. Um, but yes. I do think, yes. I do yes. think I agree with I just, you. Real quick. Yes, 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 yes. The becoming concrete of qualities. Yes. Is very important here. I just want to say, yes, oh. I agree. So we found our, we found our common ground. I wanted to find somewhere where I could go. Yes. And then you nailed it. That's it's a hundred percent that point. Like I, this is, the thing we're leading into, and I don't want to jump to the next paragraphs too much, but the production of subjectivity is kind of the big underlying thing here. And the way that this works and the way that qualitative things become concretized, which ultimately, by the way, I would argue, turns them from qualitative to quantitative by concretizing. Just a, maybe it's a, a semantic thing, but for sure, um, I agree with that. I'm. I will stop because I know you could keep going. Did you have a last point, Jack, or are we good to, to pop out? Yeah, very briefly. Well, first of all, it's so great. We found something. <laughs> um, very briefly, I'll say there's something at that interstice between the second and third syntheses at the disjunct of the quantitative and the conjunct of the qualitative 
that, and I don't have a great understanding of it, I don't think, but that does seem to be what you and I are, are trying to, um, to use Chomsky's terminology, to grope toward, but um, something we're trying to come to grips here. And that may be to push to a conclusion. When we do our review of 3.10, um, I would suggest that this process, which as I'm reading is basically the process of the three syntheses um, differentiated under the associates from the other two, um, from the perspective of capital community, I would suggest we go back through these paragraphs because um, as we read, our interpretations will change. But I really enjoyed the, the conversation and the challenge on how to understand this because it is it is very difficult. Um, and I, I appreciate you helping me uh, develop my interpretation and how with it. And I, you, this is this was good. It made me refine some of my thoughts I've been having, which is nice. And uh, uh, everyone, thank you for taking part. If you did, I'm going to go ahead and close us out. This went far too long, but hell of a hell of a section. So um, thank all of you for everything. Uh, we will continue from here next week, and I look forward to seeing you all then. Goodbye. I'll be damned, really. It's a sign episode. Oh no, so it's, it's specifically, it's literally a recurring gag throughout Seinfeld that, uh, so they, they hate Sein they hate Snapple. And there's a joke going around that they actually got paid by Snapple to have this recurring joke after they did it two or three times. Larry David hates Snapple as a thing because he found it pretentious, which is fair. And so every like few episodes, they literally, would you like a Snapple? Like just, that's the cook. No, everyone turned it down. No one ever said yes. That was the recurring joke until Jerry offered a Yoohoo and they went, oh yeah, Yoohoo. Because <laughs> the shittiest soda in the world is better than a Snapple. That's a long story, but yeah, so there's a lot of Snapple-y stuff.